Hello, and welcome to the Maidcast, the official podcast of the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment, a series of lectures on video game history as part of the Maid's ongoing effort to preserve history through teaching and displaying playable exhibits of rare games and console. While life in the time of COVID has forced us to close our doors, the support of people like you has allowed us to continue to bring history to you through lectures like the one you will hear in a few minutes. I'm Chen. I'm Anthony. I'm Red. And I'm Miles. This week, Alex will be talking with Noah Falstein, who was project leader on Sinistar from back in the day, an early member of Lucasfilm Games, and who is currently working on Games as Medicine. But before we get into that, let's listen to the news. So we have a couple new uh, interesting news tidbits. Uh, Blizzard has absorbed Vicarious Visions, uh, who are working on the Diablo 2 remake currently. So... That is an interesting development as more uh, the conglomerate of Blizzard expands. Um, we'll see how they are going to be. I want to hear you guys' input on that. Uh, like, as far as you think about the development of that game and how it goes. Because like, they had Vicarious Visions made the pro, uh, Tony Hawk Pro Skater 2, 1 and 2 remake. And that seems to be... Like, from what I've seen, it was a very fun game. They did a good job, but I haven't heard many complaints about it. Um, but the Warcraft release from Blizzard or Warcraft 3 uh, doesn't seem to have been very good. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty awkward because they, ha I, from what I know, what I remember, they, they probably show a different footage from the demo on some bigger game event and then they didn't have the same stuff while the game is released i think that's probably one of the reasons why people are so mad about it but anyway the team is gone now i mean <laughs> mm -hmm. i mean yeah if you I mean Sorry, go on. Yeah, it will only it will really depends on how how are they gonna deal with the Diablo two. I think. I mean, I have never played that game, but if they are going to do the game like Square Enix do the Final Fantasy seven remake, I mean, they're probably gonna be good. But if they, that would be if it's just another HD version or four K version of Diablo two, I mean. I think people won't buy it, won't won't think it's a good yeah. one. Yeah, they'll have to do something really kind of remarkable in, with the game, visually and as well as like gameplay and bringing it up to this decade. Uh, we'll see how it goes, because mm -hmm. that's all. The, all these remakes are so hit or miss. They're not. Some of them are fantastic and amazing. I really think Final Fantasy VII is really cool. Um, I thought it was an amazingly fun game. Definitely a diff like a reimagining re of the original. Uh, but I also realized after playing this uh, the first remake that I didn't... <clears throat> I never played the original Final Fantasy VII uh, past like this where the story went in the remake mm -hmm. like i was on i was like on my way to fight sephiroth in the original game for the first time when i like wasn't able to win and dropped off 
And then when that was like the final sequence in the remake, I was like, oh, I only, I only did like 10% of the game. <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's when you, you start worrying about, oh my God, how, how many episodes they're going to make it into. But on, meanwhile, you, you still want to play the game. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they said yeah. three. It's going to be a long journey. I mean, I'm a Kingdom Hearts fan, so... Oh yeah, you are. Yeah, almost forgot about it. It's it's gonna be forever. Yeah, I'm. I'm just. I'm also just salty. I'm salty about Kingdom Hearts. I'm salty about Kingdom Hearts. There's there's still salt in the wounds. I mean, just 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 uh, looking over um, Vicarious Vision's track record, they've done a lot that I recognize here, like. Uh, they've done the Crash Bandicoot games. They've done. Oh yeah. Uh, uh, God, I remember the Shrek games on the GameCube. Those were Ooh. fun. Uh, they did Guitar Hero in the two thousand two thousands two thousand tens. Oh really? Which Guitar Hero? Basically all of them. I don't know about it. Oh oh wow okay. Uh, and then 2010 to, to 2020, they've basically worked on uh, Skylanders and Destiny 2 as mm. a support team. Oh, they also helped work on Skylanders. Yeah, okay. they did uh, Skylanders for many years. I imagine they're still going, but I haven't nice. kept up with those games. Yeah, Toys for Bob is uh, kind of like the main Skylanders. They probably no longer work on Destiny 2 because of the split of Activision and Bungie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the only other piece of news that's kind of new news at this moment is Microsoft was going to double the, or about double their Xbox Live yearly price. Um, and almost the day, I think it was the day of the announcement, uh, they had an about face and decided not to do it uh, from fierce backlash from fans. <laughs> uh, yeah. I wonder why. <laughs> It was, um, of course, it was not a good look for them. But the fact that they immediately turned around and said, "Hey, you know, we made a mistake. We're not going to do this." Is let's say the let's say the fact it's twenty bucks more expensive in six months plan. It's mm-hmm. not really a good shape on any kind of price increase or, or yeah. raising the price. Yeah, I mean, like the only bit, the big thing about. Uh, the biggest thing about all this is how much like uh, how much are these CEOs making in comparison to everybody else that is how big are the people how much money are the people at the top making compared to everybody else who works on these games because these massive teams I mean every and even the maintenance on the servers and everyone who's taking care of Xbox Live and on that side uh, if they're not like it would be different if the employees were re- like receiving a direct boost or benefit from something like that. But as is the case with many things that have happened, that doesn't seem to be the case. Mm-hmm. Um, many of the many of times in the gaming industry. So hopefully, but I'm glad they'd said no. But also, they just faced a bunch of backlash for saying yes in the first place. Oh, and. They also re- they also say something new that is if you're playing some free to play free to play games on Xbox, you no longer need 
need the Xbox Live Gold membership to play it. And I think that's a that's cool. That's that's really cool. I mean, I still have to get PS Plus in order to play games on PlayStation. So that's a- yes. Well, sometimes, but like th- that's the one that PlayStation has like their release schedule with, which I I use all the time. But like when I I get the yearly subscription for PlayStation and they just don't like you can download a monthly really awesome AAA title and I have like several of them downloaded but I just have to maintain the online in order to have it mm-hmm. which I think is fair I think it's fine uh, like to have an access for the the largeness of the library it has been because I've been with it over time for so long that it just comes with it it's like perks of membership benefit you just the longer you're a member, the bigger of a free library you have the potential to get. But I don't know. No, that, I like that idea that Xbox did with not allowing, uh, like, with you don't have to have gold if you've downloaded them. Um, I think that would be a cool thing for PlayStation to do as well. Like, once you download it, if you've had PlayStation Plus, then you should be able to still be, play it after. But it's no no skin off my bones. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, because I plan on getting it anyway. Mm. So, Miles, how was... Uh, I wasn't able to make it to the recording with Noah this week, but how'd it go? You and Chun were able to sit in and listen to the great conversation. Noah is is a really good speaker. Like He is conversational. He made a really interesting topic out of something we've been hearing for the past couple of weeks and his his story is really interesting he's been around in the industry since basically the very beginning um and sort of hearing his his um insights on on how the industry started you know knowing the crash of 83 84 was happening uh seeing that recovering from it moving on and still working in the industry and still having the same sort of energy that he had all those years ago is really remarkable so it's a really good talk i really enjoyed it he's a very interesting guy uh look forward to taking a listen and yeah and if you're listening our last podcast too i mean it's it's not gonna going to be rocket science this week so don't worry about it mm-hmm. yeah um it's not as technical. Uh, I promise that not every episode will be that technical, um, but we'll throw them in there for the for the super fans out there. <laughs> Alrighty. Well, I think it's about time. Uh, yeah, we'll throw it on over to Alex and Noah. Uh, give it up for Noah Falstein. Hello, and welcome back. Thank you for joining us. Today we have a special treat. We have Noah Falstein, who was one of the first employees at Lucasfilm Games back before it was Lucasfilm, or LucasArts, rather. Uh, Noah, can you uh, introduce yourself and perhaps give us an ex- How did you get that job? Sure. Well, let's see. It was, uh, in fact, it was technically the games group of the Lucasfilm Computer Division when I started. Uh, Lucasfilm Games we picked up when we started to publish, uh, which wasn't until a little while after I I began there. I was, in fact, the first person at that company 
who had a previous career in the games industry, uh, there was in fact one question from one of the, the people there, I'll, I'll leave him nameless, uh, who said, well, Noah's been in this industry for four years. He may be too set in his ways of, you know, the old ways of doing video games. And the thought of there being an old way of doing video games in 1984 seems kind of silly now, but luckily that didn't stop them. And very briefly, I just happened to hear that they were hiring and the idea that Lucasfilm, who we only knew from Star Wars and Indiana Jones, was actually going to do video games was just uh, amazing. And I was so overjoyed when I got the chance to do it. I had been working in Chicago on uh, arcade games. I, I was project leader on a game called Sinistar. And uh, the arcade industry was going through a collapse right at that point in late 83. So I just jumped on the chance and really was looking forward to coming out to California. And uh, that's all it took. Now, you mentioned the collapse of 83. People, you know, these kids today sort of marvel at the concept of it. You, you knew it was happening at the time. It's an interesting perspective. I mean, did, did you feel it actually happening in the industry at the time? Well, it was kind of a, a two simultaneous collapses. There was the, the um, Atari VCS market just kind of drying up. Uh, mostly because there was just a huge deluge of really crappy games that people were putting out. For a while, any game was making money, so more and more companies made really terrible games. And then when those didn't sell, they sold them at like a dollar a piece, and it totally undercut people selling premium games at 20 bucks or so a piece. Nobody wanted to, to buy a $20 game when they could get 20 other games. And then they said, oh, all these games are terrible. And you know, at any rate, there was that. But I, the arcade industry, uh, we're never quite sure exactly how that worked out, but it felt like the novelty wore off. And literally, we had a 90% drop off in revenue from one year to the next of people just stopping going in mass to uh, video arcades. And uh, nobody, I think, has completely explained that except for the, the fact that it was this brand new thing for a couple of years and then people lost interest. So since you'd already been working on games, can you give me a perspective of what it was like moving technically from the arcade machines to the setup that they had at Lucasfilm? Well, arcade machines were exciting. I had worked on uh, the VCS and some other home computers before that, and the arcade machines had faster processors and way more RAM, and you know they were very, very much the, the high end of the market kind of what people do for AAA uh, consoles now. Uh, so going back to a home computer platform was a little restrictive, but all the stuff was in assembly language at that point, so there really wasn't that much of a, a difference. And they were at LucasArts, uh, well, at, at the games group there, were working mainly on the Atari 800, which was my favorite computer of the time and really the best for games until the Amiga came around. So that made me feel a lot better. The, the color space of that rivaled the arcade games, uh, unlike you know Commodore 64 or some of the TI-99-4 that I had been working on. So it was really nice to have at least a, a good home computer. And technically, no, it wasn't all that different. A little less RAM, uh, you know, it was a, a one megahertz processor, but uh, a 6502 instead of the slightly better 6809 that I'd been using at Williams. Uh, so our P Patreon subscribers really want to know about the history of adventure games. And 
you are intertwined with them in an interesting way at Lucasfilm. Uh, can you sort of tell us uh, sort of how did these games even come to exist as projects there? Well, all of us, uh, certainly the vast majority of us in the group, came to Lucasfilm in large part because we were enthralled by Star Wars and by storytelling. Uh, like many of the games industry people are right now, we were all you know, science fiction and fantasy nerds and, you know, loved all that sort of stuff. And uh, it was always in our mind to do that, uh, even with the first two games, Rescue on Fractalus and Ball Blazer, uh, both uh, the, the two Daves who did those games, each had fairly elaborate science fiction stories behind them that, uh, you know, we really kept up that tradition. When I, the first game that I did there, Coronas Rift, uh, there was a, a, you know, a very light science fictional background, but we still had uh, spent time trying to figure out what that was like, and we were learning storytelling along the way. So we were just itching into itching to get into something a little more cinematic to to bring together what Lucasfilm did as a movie company with this very limited fledgling uh, games group, and that was really the the impetus for it. You know, beyond that, uh, I think the path was that we got a chance to do a game based on the movie Labyrinth that was put out by Lucasfilm with uh, David Bo Bowie and uh, this young actress that I, I said, you know, she's just not very good. It's her first movie. And have you ever heard of Jennifer Connelly? I wonder what she's doing now. You know? <laughs> um, anyway, that was our first experiment in doing more cinematic storytelling and also coming up with a uh, alternative to the traditional parsers that were being used. And it helped inspire Ron Gilbert, who I had hired to work on that Coronas Rift game, uh, who then wanted to do something new along those lines. And um, you should probably try and corral him and Gary for Maniac Mansion uh, interviews if you haven't already. Oh, no, definitely. We've got them. We're hoping to grab them down the line. We may poke you to convince Ron a little bit. Uh, but you, I mean, after Labyrinth being the first game that actually was a Lucasfilm property, was there any kind of interesting constraints placed on you? Were you allowed to do whatever you wanted? Like that's that's a, an archetype that really became prominent in the late eighties and nineties, like movie game, right? But it seems like you were doing this in your own way, coming at it from a different angle. Yeah, it was. So it was a Lucasfilm property, but of course there were other people involved. Uh, you know, one of my favorite anecdotes is that uh, David Bowie's um, handlers sent us uh, a request. They said, "Oh, by the way." As you, as you know, David's eyes are, each one is a different color. Here are the two Pantone colors for his, his eyes. Could you match these, please? And this was by this time on the Commodore 64, which as, as uh, you know, Chip, I think, would like to say, it had 16 colors, all ugly, you know, and uh, none of them were close. And it didn't matter because eyes were, you know, a single black pixel at that point. And we were really concerned that this would mean that they'd just blow up and in some typical Hollywood fashion tell us that this was unacceptable. But, you know, we explained it to them and there was clearly a sort of dismissive, oh, it's just a video game, you know, nobody's gonna care about this stuff, sure, whatever you want. And in general, we had plenty of, of freedom, uh, never had uh, a lot of involvement with, um, uh, with, uh, Oh, gosh, the, the folks running the movie. Uh, David Fox got to work a little bit with Douglas Adams, who was involved in some of the writing. 
Um, but beyond that, uh, Jim Henson, as far as I recall, he might have been in one meeting with David. There really wasn't a lot of oversight. And George, who was wonderfully supportive to have us do stuff, is not a real game developer. And really wasn't until I worked on The Dig with Spielberg that he suddenly got interested in, in sticking his nose in and getting excited about stuff. And we were regretful because we all had huge respect for his work and we wish he spent more time on games, but at least we, we got some good input from uh, some of his friends. Uh, and it makes sense Douglas Adams would have had an interest because he was already doing games with Infocom, right? And uh, eventually would do Starship Titanic. That's right. And uh, I forget the exact timeline, but we knew a lot of the Infocom guys. I'm still close friends with uh, Steve Moretzky and um, I also helped bring Brian Moriarty over from Infocom to Lucasfilm to work on Loom uh, a few years after that. So now uh, I want to take the last 10 minutes to talk about Atlantis, if we can. Indiana sure. Jones, The Fate of Atlantis. I mean, having the experience of translating a Lucasfilm property in Labyrinth, can you contrast that experience with Fate of Atlantis, where, I mean, literally, you're, you're making a sequel to the movies, kind of, or a prequel, or, you know, I mean, this is a piece that goes, this is not a movie, this is a separate story, right? Well, the, the missing link there is I was also one of the co-project leaders on Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, and I won't delve into that, but except to say that it was really a proving ground, and I was the only one who uh, carried on from that one into Fate of Atlantis. What I experimented with, and it was... I, you know, we were very collaborative, so when I say we, you know, it was uh, uh, definitely all of us. But one of the things I pushed for more than the other folks was to try and make games that uh, adapted themselves to the player's interests. So it wasn't forcing the player to play it the way we wanted them to, but they would, you know, essentially, for example, have alternate uh, ways in Last Crusade to uh, get past guards. You could fight your way past them with an action interface or you could solve puzzles and get a pass signed by Hitler and get past them without having to fight them. And I wanted to take that farther in Fate of Atlantis, and they paired me with Hal Barwood, who had just come to our group at the time, and uh, that was just a, a marvelous partnership um, because Hal had been a filmmaker, screenwriter, producer, director for many years, and we were just amazed he was willing to give that up to come work on video games. And I immediately started learning a huge amount from him about storytelling, writing, uh, camera uh, composition, all the sorts of stuff that he learned as a filmmaker. And in turn, my job was to help him understand interactivity. Uh, one of the things that I, I loved was that at first, Hal would talk about, well, you know, the film has got to do this. And I said, Hal, it's a game. And he kept making that mistake over and over again because of where he'd come from. <laughs> and one day he said, yeah, my pal Matthew Robbins is working on a new game, you know, it's, and he started to describe it. I said, hell, you said game. Did you mean film? We're, you're finally one of us. Um, but it was great, great to uh, uh, get him involved. And uh, much like the others, we had a lot of freedom uh, in this case, because Spielberg is a gamer and was very excited and loved our games. He was involved quite a bit. Hal had worked with him. He'd, he'd been the screenwriter on Corvette Summer, uh, and uh, you know uh, a few other of his his films, so you know, Ghostwriter on Close Encounters. So we had a lot of connection with with Stephen, and uh, George got involved uh, peripherally, but but it was mostly Stephen who who jumped in on stuff. And yet both of them gave us free reign to do whatever we wanted. So it didn't feel very restricted. 
we really wanted to emulate uh, the Raiders of the Lost Ark more than anything else of the, the three that had been done to the time. And we tried to capture some of the feeling of that movie in our game. Uh, that's uh, definitely, I think that's a, you succeeded in that. And one of the things I wanted to touch on here, I mean, working with Spielberg, there's sort of this archetype in the games industry of people who don't know how games are developed coming in and, oh, why don't you make them fly? Why don't you give them more? You know, they've got thousands of ideas and it's like every one of them will take another year and a half on projects. Uh, what's When you're working with like these story adventure games, though, and with the, the tools that you had at Lucasfilms, it feels like you could really do quick revisions. Was there a real fast collaborative sort of process thanks to the Scum Engine or... Uh, well, there certainly was within our group. Uh, uh, Stephen and um, who is really, I guess, the only outside one who kind of spent a lot of time reviewing. We would give him updates rarely, but he was always very open and interested. Uh, and then he played. He was one of the first people to play through the game. In fact, I, I remember he found an obscure bug having to do with um, <laughs> installing the game over some partition on the PC. And uh, you know, I wanted to give him credit as a playtester for that. Uh, and he played it with his son Max on his lap and would call us up and ask for um, hints. We gave him basically our, our numbers and he would call the, the people who made the game directly and we were just delighted to be able to help him. Max uh, Spielberg is now a game designer and programmer. Uh, I, I forget where he is now. He was at EALA for a while. So I feel uh, slightly responsible for helping push him on that path with the, the games of, of ours that I knew he played. Uh, and how much of sort of that collaboration came forward into the dig? I mean, were there even like maybe gameplay elements or ideas that made it through or was the dig completely a fresh start? Well, the dig was brand new. Uh, Steven actually pitched it to us while he was playing, I think... Um, Last Crusade, he was talking to Ron and talked to him about how there was this idea he had had for his Amazing Stories TV series, but it was too involved for its half-hour half, its half hour, uh, format that they were working on of some people stranded on a, um, not stranded, but some people doing excavation on an alien planet, and they're finding this weird castle and a statue, and the big reveal, here's a spoiler for a, a, a TV show that was never made, is that you start to realize you think that there's some it's it's not a human shape and they're gradually unearthing it and it's Mickey Mouse and they're Disneyland and these guys are aliens and humanity has long since destroyed Earth. It's actually a really fun idea for a story, but then he had this idea of blending some of that with uh, he he pitched it as uh, Forbidden Planet meets Treasure of the Sierra Madre. And the original concept of The Dig was a, a very interesting blend of those two movies. So we went back and forth with him. And as I had mentioned, George got very involved in the first several meetings that we had with them. Uh, so that was really fun. And I got to brainstorm with the two of them, which was you know, certainly a highlight of my career. And great to see how creative they were. But also, they did the same stuff we did. They threw out 100 ideas. And some were good, some were bad. They just had a, a better ratio of the hits to misses than um, almost anybody else I've ever worked with. So the adventure game has really evolved. You know, it sort of died a death in the 2000s and then came back almost. Is there anything you miss about that form? Uh, you know, from a design perspective, it kind of hit, got into a rut at the end there, and now we have all these different mechanics that are coming out of different types of games. Uh, but is there is there something maybe of that old point and click form that we lost something when it vanished? 
yes and no. You know, my sense is that uh, it's certainly over-romanticized in some ways. Much as I, I loved it, I think games have evolved in a lot of beautiful ways. Um, but there is a sort of purity to it. it. It is very focused on the story. The puzzling is kind of uh, inex inex inexorably, you know, linked to the way the story is told. And we would always come up with uh, storylines that worked well with puzzling and one of the reasons Indiana Jones was so great is that his story is about solving puzzles on many levels. And uh, that is is lost, I think, in some of the more sort of action adventure, you know, the sort of Uncharted or Tomb Raider sort of angles of a similar sort of story. Uh, but I appreciate the fact that there's so much experimenting going on with interactive storytelling of various types. I'm also a member, a longtime member of Science Fiction Writers of America, that has just recently started to give their Nebula Awards to video games and allow uh, uh, game writers into their group. And it's interesting to see how the people who are mostly coming into there now are um, very interested in interactivity as a means for storytelling. So I don't feel bad about the way that, that you know, adventure games kind of lost the limelight and then, you know, as they've come back, they've been mutated that's great. I mean, that's just the way that the games industry has always reinvented itself. Oh, thank you for taking the time today. Now, I have a, a final question here. Uh, well, really, two questions. First, what are you working on? What do you want to promote? Any, anything you got in the works? And then the second thing is, what are you playing now? Okay, well, working on most of the work I'm doing now is in Games for Health, which is something that's increasingly fascinated me. Uh, uh, working, you know, one of the, the highest profile company I've been working with for over 10 years now uh, is called Achille Interactive, and they actually got the first clearance from the FDA ever uh, a few months ago uh, for a game that helps uh, pediatric ADHD. And the big deal is that it is prescribed by doctors now just as a game, not as a game plus therapy or medication. You can play the game and their randomized control trials have shown that it's very effective. So I'm delighted that that's worked out. It was actually started also by several other ex-LucasArts guys. And what am I playing? Well, I have to admit, uh, the game that I still play, that I have been playing for a long time, whenever I exercise, is uh, Advance Wars Days of Ruin on the Nintendo DS, which is kind of obscure, but among other game designers, it is the quintessence of turn-based uh, sort of World War II-ish and a little later military strategy. It's Many games have tried to imitate it and nobody's been able to cut, quite get that sweet spot they did with that last one in the series. <clears throat> and unfortunately, oh. the company that did it, uh, they, they then went on to do uh, Fire Emblem and that was so much more successful, they haven't been refreshing the uh, Advance War series. But it is, I, I have used their their editor to create a whole bunch of my own levels and I, I play mostly those these days oh wow no a spectacular game a travesty we haven't seen one of those uh, a sequel to that series in what 10 years it's, it's just been forever thank you so much for being here Noah we're very uh, honored to have you on the show and we hope we'll have you back again and welcome back to the other side of the chat zone um, <laughs> the gamer zone uh, oh yes the gamer zone the GD zone Game developer zone, the OGGD zone, the Ogden. No, that's too many zone, letters, if you will. It's 
you gotta you gotta you gotta call it somewhere <laughs> i think you get i think you get it's parentheses letters, yeah. o parentheses g but or d just g no too complex <laughs> just stop thinking about it alex don't worry about it it's okay uh so i want to thank noah and alex for that pleasant conversation noah falstein uh super insightful um also yes also a very pleasant human being uh like you said miles <laughs> I was talking with him afterwards about uh, Sinistar and just sort of the uh, the process of getting um, very, very early uh, digital voice recordings into a video game and sort of that whole process. And while I can't really go super into it because we're going to run out of time, um, it was a really interesting project. He was not the first person to use uh, voice in a video game, but uh, he would say... And I sort of agree with him that it was like the first time it was a really integral part of a character because the character of Sinistar is this really like evil, like gloating, maniacal robot. And that really shines and that really comes through in in his sort of voice performance and the 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 effects that have been put on it and, you know, his voice lines and him just constantly berating you and threatening you and being mean. And it was great. Mhm. It, it's it's really an it's really interesting uh just the original like the original workarounds on getting voices into games and like how even in like the old Nintendo days they would just have the glitchy the most squared off wave mm-hmm. uh bit wave put into the game that remotely would sound like it. I remember, like the the early Tecmo Bowl game would have, oh yeah, like hike, uh, score, just different announcements. It's it's amazing what that you can do when you lower the power and limit yourself, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> maximize your limitations. Anyway, that is just about all the time we've got this week. Uh, thank you. Yes, thank you all for listening. Uh, thank you for listening to the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment's official podcast. If you have any thoughts, questions, corrections, or general museum ideas, please shoot us an email uh, at info at the We'd like to send a big thank you to everyone who donated recently and to our Patreon supporters who keep the maid afloat. Patreon donors get to listen to this podcast one week before it's released on major streaming services, and we'll continue with that for future episodes every week. Till then, I'm Anthony. I'm Chen. I'm Red. I'm Miles. I'm Red. Okay. <laughs> <That> was... <laughs> We've done great this week, y'all. Um, we'll see you next week. Thank you.